When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to The Broad Experience, the show about women, the workplace, and success. I'm Ashley Milne-Tite. This time we take a look at life in academia. To an outsider, being a professor can look very attractive. The interaction with the students, all those enlightened colleagues, the flexibility, long holidays. But of course, it's more complicated than that. It turns out being a successful academic is much more of a man's game, even today. The idea of being a scholar, a true scholar, is very much predicated on a traditional male model of a professor thinking lofty thoughts and having a stay-at-home wife who takes care of all of the sort of mundane, ordinary details. Coming up on The Broad Experience. Recently, I've been intrigued by a few little things friends and listeners happen to mention about their jobs in academia, information that made me want to delve further into life in the ivory tower. But before I got to the personal stories, I wanted to get some statistics. So I called John Curtis. He's Director of Research and Public Policy for the American Association of University Professors. He says the state of women in academia today isn't as advanced as it should be. They are more likely to be in part-time faculty positions rather than full-time faculty positions. If they are in a full-time faculty position, they're more likely to be in one that is not on the tenure track, in other words, that does not lead to a permanent position. And if they do get into one of those tenure track positions, uh, the percentage of women faculty who actually achieve tenure is lower than that for men. About 35% of women have tenure versus 48% of men. This might not be so surprising, but he says there's been a 40-year push to get women academics on an equal footing with their male colleagues. He has a daughter who's in college at the moment, and the sheer number of women students, he says, is partly why this matters. Women are now the majority, in fact, uh, a large majority of the student population in colleges and universities. And they also earn the majority of degrees at all levels, including at the doctoral level. So we've reached a point where we can't say there aren't enough women out there who have uh, attended college or have, have completed advanced degrees to bring them into the faculty, that really we need to have a faculty that matches the diversity, certainly in terms of gender, of the student population. He says if young women at university are seeing more women as adjuncts than full professors, the circle has a good chance of perpetuating itself. The reasons behind all this are varied. I talked to Erin Haney about some of them. She's an associate professor of English and director for the Center for Teaching Excellence at the University of New Mexico. She enjoys her job, loves teaching, loves the energy of the classroom. But she says there's no doubt one reason academic life is harder for women is because women often have babies. And academia has been slow to adjust to this fact. When she had her daughter 10 years ago, she was working at a university in the Midwest. There was no official maternity leave, which meant that um, in order to take any kind of paid time off, I needed to accumulate sick days. 
um, it worked out okay for me. I had my baby in March, and then I was able to take the rest of the semester off with accumulated sick days. But that's partly because I had worked for years, um, and I had my child. Uh, actually, I delivered my daughter the day before my 40th birthday. So um, waiting until one has tenure and waiting until one has accumulated uh, sick days worked for me, but for many women, it's biologically uh, not practical <laughs> to go that route. Then there's the question of how much goes into an academic career. More than I realized, it's one of those jobs where you could always be working and still feel you're not getting enough done. And one of the things that I don't think a lot of people um, understand is that we spend a lot of our time working hard, but only part of our work is valued, meaning will help us get jobs, help us get raises. So we're spending a lot of time working, but always with that sort of sick, anxiety-provoking feeling that, that we're not doing our real work. The real work, she says, is getting your research published and getting grants to fund it in the first place. Things that make you look good on the outside and get you recognized within the academic community. She says it all adds up. And a lot of women don't have the energy to do everything it takes to be a star academic because of all the other work they do. To be successful, that requires an incredible amount of concentration, right? So you have your teaching and your committee work and all these other things. But in order to really be successful and get jobs and get raises and get grants, you have to have publications and you have to be able to concentrate. And that requires a lot of time free from any other thoughts. So that means you can't be thinking about taking the kids to the doctor. You can't be thinking about how dirty the house is. Um, and that's where I think it's really uh, the idea of being a scholar, a true scholar, is very much predicated on a traditional male model of a professor thinking lofty thoughts and having a stay-at-home wife, a stay-at-home mom who takes care of all of the sort of mundane, ordinary details. She says it's extremely difficult to do both. That stereotype of the absent-minded professor? Perhaps he could be absent-minded because he had someone at home dealing with the practical stuff. This episode of the show is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website. Squarespace is always improving their platform with new features, new designs, and even better support. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look great on every device, every time. It's easy to use, but if you want some help, Squarespace has a great support team that works round the clock. It starts at just $8 a month and includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. You can start a trial at squarespace.com with no credit card required and begin building your website. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code BROAD11 to get 10% off and to show your support for the broad experience. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. In case you're wondering about some of the other work professors do, there's some interesting research on how male and female academics spend their time. Men, it turns out, are much more protective of their research time than women. And remember, conducting research in your field is really what gets you recognized and promoted. 
In one study, male associate professors spent 37% of their time on research, whereas women spent 25%. Men also spent less time on mentoring, meetings, and being on committees than women. This is what academics call service work, things that are helpful for the community as a whole. Kate Clancy is an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. She also writes a blog for Scientific American. She says this kind of work can put women in a bind. There's this way where in order to have authority and be taken seriously, women have this double-edged sword. On the one hand, if we don't play along, we can be outgrouped, right? So if we don't do that cleaning up of the fridge or taking on that extra service requirement, we are far more likely to be seen as bad team players than if it were a man to refuse those things. Um, but then if you do play along, then you get on that second tier. It's, it's a complete lose-lose situation because then if you agree to be the easygoing person who always picks up the mop, then you also are a second-class citizen because you're a mother. You are somehow you are mothering or taking care of everybody else. And, you know, I just happen to be um, – I just had a phone meeting with a collab- with a collaborator just before this interview, and we were talking about this. And what she said was, you only have two options when you're a female PI. PI stands for principal investigator, someone who's heading a scientific project. You either are the asshole or the mother. And there's no, there's no way to be anywhere in between. Because if you try to sort of mitigate the two and somehow be somewhere in the middle, it's just too messy. People don't know how to respond to it. And so if you want to not have to do all the maternal stuff, you have to be a jerk. Kate loves a lot about her job. She says her department's friendly to women and mothers, and she has a young daughter, so she likes the flexibility of being able to leave early to pick her up from school and then finishing her work later. She also has a ton of freedom to pursue the research she loves. But one thing she doesn't like about the sciences as a whole is that they can be rather unfriendly to women. Now, let me give you some background to what we're going to talk about next, because it gets pretty serious. If any of you work in the sciences or follow scientific blogs, you may know the story of a woman called Danielle Lee. She's a biologist, she's African-American, she teaches at Oklahoma State University, and she also blogs for Scientific American as the urban scientist. Earlier this fall, she was asked by an editor at a small online science publication to write something for him for free. She refused, politely, saying she couldn't work for nothing, and he called her an urban whore. She responded in a video online and the story began to escalate. It became about the way women in science, particularly women of colour, can be treated by their male colleagues. A lot of the follow-up writing was about sexual harassment. And here's what I took away from the many comments I read from women in the sciences who said they'd been sexually harassed, not assaulted, just made to feel really uncomfortable. They felt they couldn't say anything because the person doing the harassing was the one person who could help them in their career. More than at a regular organization, it seems in academia, there's often a single person who's your ticket to the next level of success. Back to Kate Clancy. Recently, she and some colleagues conducted a survey of scientists from all disciplines who'd spent any time at a field site for their work. The researchers asked participants if they'd ever encountered any kind of sexual harassment. The results shocked them and really changed their thinking about the scientific community they're a part of. Most survey respondents were women, about 77% of the total. 60% of respondents reported sexual harassment. 20% reported sexual assault. To my mind, regardless of how you try to think about how the sample might be biased in terms of who decided to do it, those are enormous numbers. Um, And devastating numbers. And then the stories that accompany them with the interviews are equally devastating. Uh, And the main... And again, for me, the main way in which it was devastating was not just about the actual experience of being harassed or assaulted, because there's this way where as a woman, you come to expect that at least some of that's going to happen to you someday. 
Um, and so there's this way where that part is is horrible, but the the follow up that revictimization when a woman doesn't know what to do because it's her own PI. Who do you report a, an assault to when it's your boss? What do you do when that person is the one who raped you? Or what do you do if you withstand an entire field season worth of psychological abuse where you have things thrown at you, you have your food taken away, you're not allowed to use the bathroom? You finally go home to your university and you find that there is actually no reporting mechanism for abuse or assault or harassment at your university. And when you finally find, talk to human, you know, talk to HR, they say because you're a graduate student, you're not technically an employee, so they can't help you. Which she says has happened. It may seem crazy that things like this are going on in the 21st century and in the U.S., or at least it does to me. She says what made it hard for many of the people involved was they felt they couldn't say anything, even though technically a field site is considered a university space where university rules apply. But um, people don't treat it that way. And there are some of the interviewees um, reported that one of the first things they were told when they arrived to the field was what happens here stays here. A A lot of people exploited those times to have affairs. So they would have an affair with somebody there, either with a fellow researcher or somebody else who lived nearby. And they would say, you know, what happens here stays here. And that very clear sense that you are not to talk about what happens in the field once you leave the field creates a real sense that there is no safe reporting structure if something bad happens. She says there's always less sexual harassment when the rules of an organization are very clear. She says universities need to be a lot clearer on this, especially as the sciences are trying to attract more women. You know, my collaborators and I, you know how I was saying before, we're forever changed. I mean, we can't unknow this information that we know. And we have to carry that with us the rest of our lives, that there are some horrible things that our very own colleagues do, that they do under the auspices of science, right? And that, the, and that a lot of science that is published that comes out of field sites, not just in anthropology, but across all these, all these disciplines that we looked at in this survey, all this published research is done on the backs of these mostly young female graduate students who are being harassed and abused. Um, And I think that's the devastating part for me is this thing that I love, and and this is something that a lot of the interviewees talked about too, is that they feel such grief over their loss of innocence, the way that they're changed by the the experience, uh, by the loss of the science they got to do, by the loss of the scientists that they could be. Because a lot of them left. Right. A lot of the, you know, uh, people who uh, are harassed are more likely to leave, at least so far from our preliminary analyses. And even if they stay, they're going to change what they're doing in order to stay away from the person who's been hurting them. So that means cutting off an avenue of something they probably were really passionate and excited about. So I think telling the stories gives these women a chance to heal. And it flips the problem we've been having where the science has been done on their backs. And it's time to flip it and actually prioritize the people over the science. Kate Clancy. She and her colleagues are still analysing the data they collected from that survey. They're going to submit a draft of their study by the end of this year. They hope it'll be published in an academic journal in 2014. That's The Broad Experience for this time. You can comment on this episode at thebroadexperience.com or on the show's Facebook page. I'll be posting a lot of links to things I've mentioned today on the website under this episode. The Broad Experience is supported by the Mule Radio Syndicate, which hosts a whole bunch of podcasts on many different topics. Check them out at muleradio.net. This is the 30th episode of The Broad Experience. You can support what I'm doing in a big way by following up on the sponsor offers I mentioned during the show. By doing so, you're making it far more likely I'll continue to get sponsorship going forward. 
And if you like what you hear, please write a quick review on iTunes. The more reviews I get, the likelier it is the show will be found by other people who don't know about it yet. And if there's someone you think would enjoy the show, please tell them about it. I'm Ashley Milne-Tite. Thanks for listening. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.